Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. I am super excited to welcome you to an episode about William Faulkner's Smoke. William Faulkner is an author whom I explored and read widely in high school. Uh, my high school had a thing about Faulkner. I'm not sure why, but there was just a lot of Faulkner in the curriculum and he is great, or he was, I guess, and is a great American author, um, and an author whose writing was very formative to my own understanding of literature and literary analysis. I recently traveled to New Orleans, Louisiana. Yes, it is a long way from Munich, but I was there for, uh, good friend's wedding, so it was all worth it. I traveled to New Orleans and I thought, where else would I find, I guess except for in Mississippi, just some really interesting forays into Faulkner. Specifically, I was looking to find a short story collection from him. We had read A Rose for Emily, I think as early as sophomore year of high school, probably when I was 15 years old. And just the disturbing and almost like Southern Gothic-esque atmosphere of that short story has stayed in my mind. It's lingered throughout the years, right? Almost 10 years later, I'm still thinking about the story. And I thought, I have no idea how many short stories or how prolific Faulkner was in the short story realm. Turns out he's very prolific from what I discovered in New Orleans. Um, but I went to the Faulkner bookstore in New Orleans in the French Quarter, um, got to talk to some lovely um, people there who were involved with the bookstore, um, and just it was a lovely experience learning about the wealth of information and collections that um, are now published under Faulkner's name. There were a lot of different short story collections. There's definitely the uh, short story collection that's a little bit shorter. It's kind of his premier stories. So like A Rose for Emily is in there. A couple of the stories in the collection that I bought are also in there. Um, and it's in that same beautiful modern library edition cover. I know The Sound and the Fury has like a special edition from that because I read the modern library edition in high school, I think possibly against my English teacher's wishes. <laughs> I think that um, he really wanted us to read the Norton or at least have access to the Norton, which of course for something like Shakespeare I would have done, but for Faulkner I was kind of a fangirl and <laughs> wanted <laughs> that um, beautiful modern library edition, which I still have on my shelf to this day. I have the same um, edition for Absalom Absalom, which is a book that I uh, have not read out of fear, <laughs> honestly. Um, it's one of those books like Ulysses where I feel like I would have to take a class on it, even if it was some like 
online class where we didn't get in as deep in as maybe a college course. It's just one of those books where I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, I really should um, have some guidance before I dive in. Maybe I should have done the same thing with Infinite Jest, but I just decided at some point that I was just going to have to read it anyway. And hopefully maybe I'll get to the same point with those other two books that I just mentioned. So, long story short, there's a modern library edition of the collected short stories of William Faulkner. It's not an exhaustive list of them. It's a rather short book. I think probably 250 to 315 pages or so. And then there's also... Um, maybe a penguin edition off the top of my head that might be wrong but an edition that's in a soft cover of all of his collected stories and again not an exhaustive list but there's probably like 50 stories in there um that was a thick book and as i was traveling internationally though it was tempting i decided against it and i ended up with this volume that i'm now a little bit obsessed with um it's probably the best thing I've read in a long time. Um, it's William Faulkner's Knight's Gambit. It's a collection of six different detective fiction stories edited by John Duval. I'm going to get into the introduction of this collection and honestly y'all I might do a series on this collection just because it hit me so <laughs> vibrantly. It just it really has made an impact on uh, what I've all been reading this year, and as well the different thoughts that I've been having about literature um, and what I might read after this collection. These are stories that I have to read like two or three times in order to start to finally get to the inner workings of them, and I love that. They're stories that are so complex, so interesting, so detail-oriented, um, and the thought and insight that went into the final printed versions of these stories in this collection, which we'll get into in a moment, um, really takes the cake for me. It's, um, yes, I will say no more. Let's get into the introduction of this collection, Night's Gamut. So as I mentioned, this collection is edited by John and Duval. And what became very clear very quickly in this introduction is that this is an academic and intentional labor of love that Duval undertook in order to deliver this collection in the form that it takes. And what I mean by that is that these stories were at different points, some stories more than others in the collection, they were taking a drastically different form when they first went into publication. The reason why that is, is that each of these stories was published by a different publishing house or a magazine. And so when Faulkner originally wrote them, he had different uh, edits, different intentions, sometimes even like different descriptions, different um, mentions. He mentions a lot of things about um, life in the South that the northern e editors of the magazines that he was submitting to either took out completely, didn't understand, changed, you know, so there were a lot of changes that went against Faulkner's original intentions and original writing for these stories. And so what Duval 
undertook in this project was to go back and find as much of the original material of the stories as possible. Um, in terms of, he went and found Faulkner's own drafts. So he went and did some research about what Faulkner's final submissions to magazines or other publications looked like. And it had like a seal in the top left corner, you know, that had the date, something like this. So there was, you know, specific indications on these documents that Faulkner intended X or Y draft to be submitted for final publication. Um, and he went and found these and then compared them to either the latest published version and maybe an earlier edition, for example, of Knight's Gambit of these stories or in the magazine itself and compared them. He also, in some instances, was able to find some really interesting versions with edits by people from the magazines, like the lead editor of the magazine at the time, or Faulkner's uh, agent, for example, somebody at the agent's uh, studio. So it's just, it's, it was a really fascinating read for an introduction, and this is an introduction that I think after I finish the book, after I kind of know a little bit more of the context behind all these stories, I'll go back and read again. Um, it just offers such an exhaustive list of different edits, different sources, different um, details about these texts. And in that sense, it's one of the richest introductions I've read in a long time. So I can only, from one academic to another, tip my hat to Duvall for undertaking such a massive effort. Something also that I was impressed by and interested in is that there was this overwhelming sense of trust in Faulkner's intuition, in his command as a writer. Um, and some of the changes that were reverted, you know, the southernness that maybe other sources wrote out of the different pieces, you know, that makes sense to me to change because that was that helps provide a richer context for the story in that case. But, you know, other different spellings and different orthographical type of edits, you know, having so much trust in Faulkner as a writer was just fascinating to me. I feel like there aren't very many, like, writers who um, people would do this for. They would come back, you know, a hundred years later and kind of, like, restore their original version and you know Faulkner definitely speaks to um the you know Faulknerians the base of scholars behind Faulkner's work um and it definitely speaks to the amount of recognition he has today um as a prolific and imaginative and modern writer I'm going to read an example from pages XVII to XVIII in the introduction. So this is actually what Duval writes about Smoke, the short story we will be reviewing today on the show. Um, and I'm going to read the first paragraph, uh, which goes from XVII to the next page. Quote, rejected by both the Saturday Evening Post and Tribner's, Smoke was accepted by Harper's on January 18, 1932. Harper's paid $400 for the story, although less than half what Faulkner would have earned from the Post and around $100 less than Scribner's rate, the payment from Harper's carried the intangible of prestige. 
Since the magazine had a solid reputation for literary fiction, having published stories in previous decades by Henry James, William Dean Howells, Mark Twain, and Jack London. Edited at the time by the Harvard-educated popular historian Frederick Lewis Allen, Harper's epitomized the upper middle brow. With its familiar orange cover displaying its table of contents, advertisements were segregated at the beginning of each issue for the magazine's content. The ads reveal an aspirational consumer who valued reading and education. Since they published the magazine, Harper and Brothers had six pages advertising their new books, but many of the other major New York publishers had full-page ads featuring their latest list. Each issue also included around 10 pages of ads for prep schools and colleges. The magazine featured a mix of cultural commentary, short stories, and poetry. The lead article in the issue in which Smoke appeared is Lincoln Colcord's The Realism of Japanese Diplomacy. Colcord was a well-known journalist at the time who wrote political analysis for a number of influential magazines." Unquote. So you can kind of tell like the amount of scholarship that went into this particular edition of these stories. Um, I loved the background on these magazines. I found it fascinating. There's, of course, authors mentioned like Ernest Hemingway or um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, the authors that were mentioned in the passage that I just read. So, you know, it's really fascinating. And I think that the context which Duval is able to create for Faulkner and these works in the introduction just lends so much and like really propels the reader forward and prepares them well for reading this collection. So I would highly, highly recommend um, this particular edition. I really enjoy detective fiction in general, as we'll get into next. Um, and yeah, I just, I want to, again, tip my hat to such an amazing and thorough investigation of these stories. Detective fiction. So we've done a lot of detective fiction on the show, for anything from Sherlock Holmes to uh, Dupont, which was uh, Edgar Allan Poe's original um, series of three detective fiction stories. They're a lot longer. They're like kind of the length of these in this book by Faulkner. There's a lot to investigate and discover in the realm of literary gothic detective fiction and i would say i haven't really enjoyed detective fiction to the extent of the edgar Allan poe stories until i read this particular short story which is the opener of this edition um and each story after that just is so wonderful so again i might if you want me to do a series on all six of these stories let me know um, we can definitely figure that out. So Faulkner wrote most or even all of his work within the context of a fictional county, I believe in Mississippi, called Yoke Napa Thawa. Thawa? I, I can't pronounce it. Y-O-K-N-A-P-A-T-A-W-P-H-A county. Um, the detective is the county attorney in these stories. His name is Gavin Stevens, more on him later. And 
it, within this context, something that definitely prevails in all these stories is the location, right? The southernness of the writing. Faulkner was definitely a regionalist in this regard. Just the stories are so rooted in the culture and the landscape and the place uh, from which they were written. Um, and so in terms of you know, all the stories, I think it it makes it very helpful to read them as just a point of an anchoring point almost. Um, because the particular landscape, because the county in which all these are based, you know, it's different situations, but sort of similar to um, the Edgar Allan Poe stories, there's a lot of recognizable elements between each of the stories. and. Faulkner's writing can get really complex at certain points, so it's really helpful to have these anchoring points throughout and between the stories. There's also this amazing sense that's quite beautiful, actually, of character development of this character, Gavin Stevens, throughout the different stories in this collection. I personally really enjoyed uh, getting to know him better throughout the stories. I think the stories are ordered very well in the collection. Um, I'll have to research for next time whether the stories are published chronologically or not, but whoever did the ordering and however they're ordered, they're just ordered very well. Let's get into the title story of this episode, Smoke. So there's quite a bit, like a big section at the beginning of this short story that's the background of the case, so to speak, is this man Anselm Holland um, who moves to this area and marries a woman who becomes the inheritor of a large piece of very nice land in the county. They have twins, Virginius and Anselm Jr. The woman dies and the sons are left to Anselm Sr. to be raised by. Um, but within a few years, the sons are adults and the first son, Anselm Jr., decides, look, this is my land, I have rights to it, I want the rights to the land, basically, and um, they're both described, these two Anselms are both described as very volatile, almost viciously emotional figures, and so they have a big blow-up fight. Young Anselm leaves, he becomes a hermit in a property that overlooks the area where the farm is, um, and he essentially just doesn't talk to anybody. And is waiting essentially for something to either happen to the father or for something to happen to the land. The younger son doesn't go away immediately, but one day there's a similar conflict. However, Virginius, the younger son, has completely different temperament. He's the kind of person who's mysterious, nobody knows what he's thinking, his emotions don't portray what he's thinking very easily, um, and he's not somebody who's going to blow up at you. He's just kind of like a cautious um, person who, I think one of the quotes in here is that he's in command of himself, or that the command that he has over himself was a little scary to some people. 
So old Ansem, being the volatile person he is, turns Virginius away from the farm in a similar way. And Virginius goes to live with a cousin or a cousin-in-law, um, whom we'll hear about a little later. Um, his name is Granby Dodge, and Virginius helps um, buy Granby Dodge out of his terrible financial situation at his farm and starts to essentially help uh, the cousin run his farm. In the meantime, old Anselm um, is letting the farm come into disrepair. He's not taking care of it, he's not, you know, working the land as he should be, um, the house is in disrepair, um, and so over the years he even stops to pay his land taxes and a mysterious check comes in the mail every time these taxes are due and he's not paying them that basically says here's the money for him make sure he gets the receipt everybody thinks and knows in their hearts that Virginius is the one who's doing this so old Anselm dies in a gruesome way befitting the gruesomeness that he brought with him on the earth um there's just this odd will that he leaves as well um and so he dies i will be describing gruesomeness so trigger warning for anybody who gets grossed out by this kind of thing um they find him with one foot in his horse's stirrup. The horse has been beaten very severely with a stick rather than like a switch or a whip in the back of the horse. Um, so there's like open wounds on the horse and then he is battered basically almost as if the horse has been running with him attached to the stirrup for quite some time. And it takes the judge of the county about two weeks to start and um, deliver some sort of message on the will whether he's thinking okay I'm gonna carry out this will or not and this is suspicious right if everything was in order the will could be carried out very quickly but instead the judge takes these long weeks to deliberate the will and the way that this deliberation period is described is very much almost like purgatory, where the judge and his assistant, Old Job, are coming routinely in and out of the courthouse just to sit in these long, hot days in the courthouse. Um, the courthouse is described as something where if somebody smokes, then the next day there's still smoke in the courthouse. It's just kind of this, almost like this tomb um, and a tomb indeed it becomes because um, the judge gets shot and the assistant is there. The assistant is known as being a little bit, um, I won't say negligent, but he sleeps sometimes on the watch and things like this, but he always is able to wake up if somebody enters the courthouse or sneaks past him. He's always very alert if this happens. However, the judge is shot between the nose, between the eyes, um, with him right there. So somebody was very, very quiet when this all was happening. After this, Gavin Stevens enters the situation and essentially works through the case from start to finish in this very convoluted, 
legal-esque kind of way and we'll talk about in the analysis you know what this could have meant in terms of the commentary on the legal system or a commentary just on this county in general before then though i'm going to read a couple of descriptions i love faulkner's descriptions and i'll also read a little bit of gavin stevens deliberation We'll start with some of Gavin Stevens' talk here, pages 14 and 15 of the story in the Knight's Gambit edition. And we're gonna start here, just in the middle, like I said, of his deliberations. Wait, Stevens said. All that man had to do was wait. But it wasn't the waiting that worried him, who had already waited for 15 years. That wasn't it. It was something else, which he learned or remembered when it was too late, which he should not have forgotten. Because he is a shrewd man, a man of self-control and foresight. Self-control enough to wait 15 years for his chance, and foresight enough to have prepared for all the incalculables except one, his own memory. And when it was too late, he remembered that there was another man who would also know what he had forgotten about, and that other man who would know it was Judge Duncanfield. And that thing which he would also know was that that horse could not have killed Mr. Holland. When his voice ceased, there was no sound in the room. The jury sat quietly about the table, looking at Stevens. Anselm turned his leashed, furious face and looked once at his brother. Then he looked at Stevens again, leaning a little forward now. Virginius had not moved. There was no change in his grave, intent expression. Between him and the wall, the cousin sat. His hands lay on his lap, and his head was bowed a little, as though he were in church. We knew of him only that he was some kind of interim preacher, preacher, and that now and then he gathered up strings of scrubby horses and mules and took them somewhere and swapped or sold them. Because he was a man of infrequent speech, who in his dealings with men betrayed such an excruciating shyness and lack of confidence that we pitied him, with that kind of pitying disgust you feel for a crippled worm, dreading even to put him to the agony of saying yes or no to a question. But we heard how on Sundays, in the pulpits of country churches, he became a different man, changed his voice then timbrous and moving and assured out of all proportion to his nature and his size." Unquote. So I just love this characterization. This, you know, it's so hidden in the woodwork of this story, at least the way that I read it. And, um, you know, this character becomes so important later because Gavin accuses him, the cousin, the country preacher, as the murderer of um, Anselm Holland and also of the judge and so there's this you know beautiful way that Faulkner has of hiding these little beautiful characterizations and descriptions um, in the story. Let's move to page 17. I'm just going to read a couple short descriptions now. This starts on page 16 goes a little bit into page 17. So in this context, Anselm, young Anselm, has been accused and he basically says, yes, I did it. Let's get through with the will. <laughs> um, 
let's start on page 16, quote, For some time after that, we who watched and listened dwelt in anticlimax, in a dreamlike state in which we seemed to know beforehand what was going to happen, aware at the same time that it didn't matter because we should soon wake. It was as though we were outside of time, watching events from outside, still outside of and beyond time, since that first instance when we looked again at Anselm as though we had never seen him before. There was a sound, a slow, sighing sound, not loud, maybe of relief, something. Perhaps we were all thinking how Anse's nightmare must really be over at last. It was as though we too had rushed suddenly back to where he lay as a child in his bed and the mother who they said was partial to him, whose heritage had been lost to him, and even the very resting place of her tragic and long quiet dust outraged, coming in to look at him for a moment before going away again. Far back down time that was, straight though it be, and straight though that corridor was, the boy who had lain unawares in that bed had got lost in it, as we all do, must, ever shall. That boy was as dead as any other of his blood in that violated satyr grove, and the man at whom we looked, we looked at across the irrevocable chasm, with pity perhaps, but not with mercy. So it took the sense of Stephen's word about as long to penetrate to us as it did to Anne's. He had to repeat himself. Now, I say that you are wrong, Anne. Unquote. What a lovely passage. I just love how there's this kind of like vagueness about it, but at the same time, when you're talking about time, you're talking about the sense of tie and belonging and family um, and inheritance, you know, these major themes in this story in particular, I assume, you know, a little bit play roles in other stories here as well. Um, as I haven't finished the short story collection, I've read several of them, but all of them, um, yeah, just, you know, the way that these descriptions tie all of those important themes together, but they also don't ignore the moment and what it must be like for those characters in that moment in the story. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about an analysis up here shortly, but the last description is on page 18, the next page here. And this is just a really nice description. This is kind of symbol of a cigar box or like this kind of decorated gold European box that the former judge used as a paperweight and his daughter brought it back from him, for him from Europe and it's kind of this like superfluous thing but it becomes a really important element in the ending of the story which I won't spoil for all of you. Um, so I'm just gonna read the first time this box is described on page 18. Quote, we breathed quietly sitting about the table behind which Judge Duncan Field had been sitting when he looked up into the pistol. The table had not been disturbed. Upon it still lay the papers, the pens, the inkwell, the small, curiously chased brass box which his daughter had fetched him from Europe twelve years ago, for what purpose neither she nor the judge knew, since it would have been suitable only for bath salts or tobacco, neither of which the judge used, and which he had kept for paperweight, that too superfluous, where no draft ever blew. But he kept it there on the table and all of us knew it, had watched him toy with it while he talked, opening the spring lid and watching it snap, viciously shut at the slightest touch." Unquote. 
I just love that description. Such a small item, um, but you can really start to tell how important that description becomes um, as it goes on and on and we start to get this amazing focus in on this particular golden box. Up next, the analysis. So there's definitely this overarching theme of the story here where the legal system does not equate to justice and justice is a huge theme in this story. A lot of people in the story, there's this kind of, a lot of the characters, I should say, have this joint understanding that old Anse's end was just even though he was murdered and horribly disfigured at the end. Um, and that the will, though very curious and odd, um, which is that Virginius should essentially get the property and everyone knows that Virginius will split the property evenly between him and his brother because that's right. You know, there's this like sense of justice and Virginius as a character also has this big sense of justice like he's the person who like nowadays if he were in finance like would slowly invest in a Roth IRA over 60 years, you know, and he has this kind of like prudence about him um, that people feel is it should be in the future justly rewarded and Indeed it is, there is some sort of like positive conclusion here, which is that, you know, all things at the end, assuming, you know, even though the cousin Granby Dodge is accused of the murder, the murders, plural, you know, there's no way that he could be convicted because, as the title suggests, smoke, Gavin Stevens only presents phantom evidence. There's no like real solid evidence in here um and he has this like trick where he has put some smoke into that little gold box that i just read a passage of and at the end he kind of reveals like haha you know i was the person who blew this smoke into this box i didn't even know that it was going to stay in there for so long you know so it was just and that's one big piece of his evidence where he says basically like there's a foreigner who loves to smoke who came into town who associated with granby dodge at his farm and who if he was smoking after he killed the judge his smoke would still be in this box which was open and so um that has to do with like the airflow in the courtroom which i described earlier um, so, you know, it's just like this whole array of like phony phantom evidence. I think this is a big theme in other detective fiction, like in Pose as well. Like, all of these um, incongruent different uh, elements or aspects end up coming together in this um, patchwork theory that, you know, in some cases, like in Sherlock Holmes, is the actual series of events of what happened or very close to that um, and here it just seems like almost a maybe not a not a parody but a borderline parody or commentary on the justice system on the legal system in this story one could argue that justice was served at the end of the day but it wasn't with help from the legal system. In fact, the legal system just put a wrench in the works. Um, 
so again, you know, the smoke title of this story is just so evocative of this commentary or perhaps critique um, on the legal system, on the evidence, on how the legal system is has a lot of self-serving ends. This is all what I read in the short story. Um, and, you know, the way that Gavin speaks even, that quote from page 14 and 15 that I read, you know, it's so like... It just it turns in circles and circles and circles. It's so ambulous. It's like, uh, really, it's just over and over. And um, I was reading this article about the short story beforehand and another short story in this collection called Tomorrow. And the author was talking about how Gavin Stevens probably wouldn't have held the attention of the participants in the courtroom if it weren't for how hard he was to follow. And I think, you know, that's a big um, point as well. It's just like, there's so much needless, like confusion and ambling and all of this. Um, and that article, by the way, is linked in the show notes for this episode, relevanceofliterature.com slash notes. So, Grabby Dodge, never convicted but definitely accused with all of this smoky evidence um you know legal system presented as self-serving maybe indifferent to justice or aside from justice certainly not equal to justice um it really reminds me of the way that the legal system is portrayed in bleak house as something superfluous self-serving again a lot of these similar adjectives we did a whole series on Bleak House last year, or in the last couple years, maybe in 21 to 22. Uh, I would highly recommend that. Bleak House is an amazing read. Um, I wish I had more guidance when I was reading it, and so I created the series to help other people um, who perhaps wanted to read it with some others as well. That's all for this episode on Faulkner's Smoke. I'm so grateful and happy to be reading Faulkner again after my long hiatus. I don't think I've read Faulkner since high school, honestly. Um, And if you want to have some more of these short stories uh, in the future discussed on the show, let me know in the comments at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes. That's all for today. See you next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.